So on Monday, we kind of described why is it called the Feast of Nations? Why is it called the Feast of Sukkot? And uh, just a few other things. Um, just in essence for a couple of things, the Feast of Nations. Other nations are gathered in. It is when God is going to gather us to be with him, to tabernacle with us. When Jesus came, it says that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That is the sukkah, that tabernacle. That sukkah becomes like a, a hoopah or that thing that we see on Jewish weddings. Oftentimes they have like a little canopy up above them and they get married underneath this hoopah. Well, this is a picture of a sukkah as well, that God uh, is our shelter and he is going to unite himself and live and even get married to us. We are the bride of Christ. And that is why we see when the Lord returns that there is going to be this sukkah, hoopah type thing over Jerusalem because he is about to take his bride and there is soon going to be a wedding banquet of the lamb as spoken of in Revelation chapter 19. So these are things that we all are looking forward to. So tonight um, we are going to show you here that when God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, it is after deliverance that they celebrated this. Likewise, because we have been delivered by Yeshua, this is why we celebrate this. Not so that we can be saved, not so that we become a Jew, simply because we are remembering the deliverance God has brought us, the promises yet to come, and we celebrate. So a time of rejoicing. Let me show you here in Leviticus 23. We're just coming off of the heels now of the Day of Atonement, which was a time to afflict the soul. Here, though, it says, also in the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, and we talked about that last week as well, the different harvests, that this is at the grape harvest, the fruit harvest at the end. And we see many scriptures saying that at the grape harvest, the Lord... Uh, it, that's when he's coming back at the grape harvest. And it goes on and it says, You shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. On the first day of, shall be a Sabbath. On the eighth day there shall be a Sabbath. And ye shall take you on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and the boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook, and ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You might recall when I've talked about Passover, when the Lord was coming into Jerusalem, they took their palm branches and laid them down. That really isn't a Passover thing. It's a tabernacle thing. Just like we were talking about the Lord was not just the Passover lamb, but he was our atonement sacrifice, we see that same picture that he was really fulfilling them all, not making them complete so that we didn't ever have to observe them again, but doing them in our stead. And so these palm branches, that's a festival of Sukkot. And they will wave these things and say, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the very thing that they were saying when Yeshua was riding into Jerusalem in Matthew 21. So, it's interesting that there is this eighth-day Sabbath. It's a seven-day festival, but they've tagged this eighth day on the end of it, just like at Passover as well. Passover is a seven-day festival, but they tagged on an eighth day at the end by having your, your days of unleavened bread. So, it's the same type of thing. Now, Here's what I love about what's going on at this festival. Every year in Jerusalem, at the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot, there would be these 75-foot candlesticks that would be raised up outside of Jerusalem, outside of the temple. And there were these bowls at the top, gold bowls, that they would fill with uh, olive oil. Just like in the temple, that oil was a picture of the Holy Spirit. And they would take the old garments of the priest and use them as a wick as that candle at the top. 
and the priests would carry up these big jugs of olive oil, pour them inside, and light that wick. So this could be seen. Now, Jerusalem is already up on a hill, so it could be seen for miles that this celebration was going on. And because of that, history, the Talmud, we see Jerusalem was called the light of the world. Now we know that Jesus is the light of the world as well. Well, it is not an accident that when we read that Jesus calls himself the light, Jesus calls people to come and drink from him, that he's the living water, that he pronounces those things on this very festival. That is what the Bible records. In John chapter 8, we're going to look at this in greater detail, but he says, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So the very time that everybody's focusing on the light, Jerusalem being the light of the world, he says, I'm the light. I'm what this is all about. Now, by the way, the, the sages, Josephus, they say about two and a half million people were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate this right now. You think a Husker game can get intense. Two and a half million people praising God? That would be an event to partake of, wouldn't it? That would be wonderful. That would make a Husker game seem like nothing. As the Day of Atonement is the most holy day of the year, this is the most joyous day of the year on the, or the celebration, but especially on the last and greatest day of the feast, the eighth day, which we're going to talk about. I'm not going to get to that tonight, but that's my favorite part about the whole thing of atonement. We'll talk about that on Friday. But it says here, on the last and greatest day, and we read about that in, in John 8 again, the rabbis would basically go out and they needed living water. Now, living water is simply, it's basically, um, it has to be moving. It can't be stagnant. And so that's what living water would be called. And what we see is that they would go to the pool of Siloam, the priests would, and they'd have a pitcher and they would grab this running water and they would carry it back in this pitcher to the temple mount. And they would go to the stairs of the temple where you would kind of enter into it, and they would pour that water out on the stairs so that it would run down the side. And it was a picture of, for them, basically inviting the Holy Spirit and inviting God to bring the, the rains after the harvest here, to replenish the earth those kinds of things from the physical standpoint, but from the spiritual, the Holy Spirit. And they did this every year. Now you had three different groups of priests that were working hard here. You had those that were making sacrifices, you had those that were called the water pourers, and then you had those that carried the branches. Now, it wasn't just water that was poured out. They also then, from the sacrifice, had a bowl of blood. And what did they do? They did the same exact thing. And you can kind of see here, illustrated, and this is from the Temple Institute, showing you their understanding. They would pour the blood down and the water down as it would go down the side of the stairs there. Now, they would... Um, have both water and blood. What I find interesting about that is this is the living water. Jesus calls himself the living waters. And he says two things will testify. What's that? Blood and water. We see even when he was on the cross, they put a spear in his side and what comes out? Blood and water. This blood and water associated with this sacrifice because he is the living water. And so, amazing symbolism here that 
is seen at the Feast of Tabernacles. When they are rejoicing, as they pour out these water and blood, we see the Hallel is sung, which is basically Psalm 118. And here's just a little bit of it. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. Do you know what that word is, really? Shua. Yeshua. The Lord saves. The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is salvation is Yeshua. In essence, they are literally crying out, Yeshua, Yeshua, on this festival. The Lord saves. The Lord saves. And so... It goes on, the voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacle of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. So, again we see it's, he's in the tabernacles, in, in essence the sukkah. And that is why this is sung and praised and read at this time of year, at this festival. They would also sing songs from Isaiah, Isaiah 12, verses 2 and 3, which says, Behold, God is my salvation, Yeshua. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation, my Yeshua. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. It's just before this we see that Samaritan woman and he says, if you come to me, you will never thirst again. But sir, how can you get the water? The well is deep and you have nothing to draw with. And he basically says, I am the living waters. That's exactly what we are seeing here. So, Jesus himself, on this day, in John chapter 7, we see him saying this. Now the, Jew, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. In the last day, the great day of the feast, that would be the, well, the last one here. Uh, Jesus stood and cried saying, If a man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. You remember what we just saw there in John 8? It was on the last day of the festival that these priests are pouring out that water. It is on the last day that he's coming in here and saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me. I am the living waters. It says, He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. In essence, Yeshua is declaring to be that salvation, declaring to be the living waters at the very time, probably the very hour, if not minute, that those priests are pouring out the living waters and singing Psalm 118. The Lord saves Yeshua, Yeshua. And this is what's happening. So, in essence, they were telling it's a get ready message as well. A calling for the Lord waiting on him. Isaiah 4, 5. I believe we looked at this last week in reference that God was going to be that sukkah over Jerusalem. This is an end time prophetic verse. It says, Those who are left in Zion who remain in Jerusalem will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Now, I'm going to just give a little hint of what we're going to talk about on Friday. But right after this, guess who is brought before Jesus? A woman who has been caught in adultery. There is a very good reason that this is all happening at that time. I will explain that on Friday. But I like the fact here it says the Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. And that is exactly what we see happening of this woman caught in adultery coming at this Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, But that gets much better. We'll talk about more, like I said, later. 
It goes on, the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy. Jerusalem is going to be protected and covered. And we see that in many other verses. This is what we're talking about when people are taken to Jerusalem. He's going to be tabernacling with us again in Jerusalem as well as in heaven later. So these are, again, just uh, I'm going to review this just about every time. We have 30 days before the Feast of Trumpets where people are kind of repenting. Then you have 10 days of awe between the trumpets and Day of Atonement. And from Day of Atonement to the Feast of Tabernacles, you have five days. And then you have eight days beyond that, taking us to the 23rd, which is the Feast of Trumpets. All right, so that's the timeline. What I want to do is I just want to challenge you. We see that these festivals are about Jesus. It isn't about the Jews. They're not Jewish festivals. These are about the Lord. And because of anti-Semitism, it has been removed from society so that we are missing Yeshua in these things. And I'm going to challenge you here. I was reading here this last week, 2 Kings 17, verse 28. Uh, on Saturday, I was reading this. And so I kind of threw it in here. Let me give you some background of what's going on. Remember that when Solomon's son Rehoboam becomes king, initially you have 12 tribes of Israel still. But Rehoboam isn't the wisest of his sons. And you can go read the story, but bottom line is 10 tribes end up leaving him. And two tribes stick with him. Primarily Judah and Benjamin. The other 10 tribes become known as Israel or the northern tribes, sometimes known as Ephraim for all ten tribes. And they are under the king, their first king, uh, Jeroboam. Jeroboam is a wicked king. And in our little hand signal, I have a little ditty that goes 1920-08, Okay, Ahi, Hymas, JJ. Basically, what this is, these numbers are how many kings, it kind of starts out, I, I skipped a little bit, it goes north, south, Israel, Judah, 19, 20, 0, 8. Everything on your right hand means something. Israel, Judah. Everything on this hand now is going to be dealing with Israel. Northern, they were called the Northern Kingdom. South. Judah was called the southern kingdom. 19, there were 19 kings in Israel. 20, 20 for Judah. Zero, zero of those 19 kings followed the Lord. Eight, eight of the 20 in Judah. Zero, none followed the Lord. And so as a result, in about 722 B.C., the Assyrians, God allows them, after wooing them and wooing them and wooing them and them refusing to repent, God sends an enemy, the Assyrians, who then scatter those ten tribes throughout the nations. And they are lost forever. They become known as the lost tribes of Israel. Now I find that interesting because do you remember what Jesus said when he came? I have only come for who? The lost sheep of Israel. I'm not going to talk much about that tonight. I'll let that just simmer and, and you can ponder on that. But there's meaning there. Well, what happens is when the Assyrians conquer, lions and wild animals start taking over the land and killing the people. Now, the Assyrians, they don't know God. They don't, they don't understand true religion. And so they think the God of the land, not knowing Yahweh is the God of the universe, that the God of the land needs to be worshipped properly. And that's why the lions are killing people. So he sends one of these captives 
a priest who really doesn't know much about God to begin with because they've been so corrupt, but yet knows a little bit about him, sends him to go teach the people how to worship the true God. Incredible. And that's what's going on right here in 2 Kings 17. Let's look what it says. One of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. So that's a good thing. They were going to fear Yahweh. Now, by the way, how do you teach somebody to fear Yahweh, to fear God? If you've been going through our Galatians and Hebrew study, the scriptures clearly say the law of God. You know the law of God. That teaches you to fear him. That's why God gave you the law. He says, I give you these commandments so that you might obey them and fear me. How do you teach the fear of God without the law of God? You can't. You cannot. Is it any wonder that Satan has tried to get rid of the law in churches today? Because without the law, you will not fear God, and you will have America, in essence. Well, verse 29, however, every nation continued to make gods of its own. They feared the Lord, and from every class they appointed for themselves priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods, according to what? The rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. In other words, I look at it this way. It was kind of like the Great Reformation that Martin Luther had. Was that a good thing? I think so. I think it was a wonderful thing. The problem was he didn't go far enough. His Catholicism remained in a lot of different ways. There were things that still, his culture, his upbringing, he couldn't shake all of it. That's what's going on here. They want to fear God. Yeah, we, we're going to serve this God, but they couldn't let go of all the culture that they had grown up with. Guys, this has happened time and time and time again, you see in the Old Testament. When they left Egypt... God got them out of Egypt, but they couldn't get Egypt out of the people. There's a reason that, as we're going to look at here in Exodus 32, that they started building a golden calf. It wasn't like eeny, meeny, miny, mo. what animals shall we go? It was simply, that's exactly what they worshipped in Egypt. That's all they knew. And so they took the pagan rituals of Egypt and applied it to their own religion. It goes on here in verse 34. To this day they continue practicing the form, former rituals. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or the ordinances or the law and commandments which the Lord had commanded. They, want, they, they feared God, but they didn't want to obey God in the way God told them to do it. And as a result, they ended up not fearing God. That is exactly what's going on here. It continues in verse 35. With whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. You shall fear him who you shall worship, or him you shall worship, and to him you shall offer sacrifice. And the statutes, the ordinances, the law... And the commandments which he wrote for you, you shall be careful to observe forever. However, they did not obey, but they followed their former rituals. So these nations feared the Lord, yet served their carved images. Also their children and their children's children have continued doing as their fathers did, even to this day. You know, one of the things I love about this festival is I see all these kids running around out here. And I see you parents are establishing a foundation for those kids. 
you're establishing something for them other than the rituals of this world. You know, I'm grateful that some of my kids, that's all they know are the biblical festivals because we never did the other ones. Noah remembers a few of them. But in reading this, their children and their children's children, their grandchildren are doing the same thing. Why? It's because what their fathers did. Let me tell you, this isn't just for you to celebrate these festivals. This is for your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren to celebrate these festivals. It is to break the chain so that they don't have such a hard time in getting rid of Egypt out of themselves. But so that they know the truth, and that's all they know, is what the Word of God says. Makes a difference. They served their carved images. Do we do that today? I know that we are not setting up, I don't have a bale or an asterisk pole in here or anything like that, but do we serve our carved images today? And if so, how? I'll let you answer that. But I'll tell you what, I can tell you we do. All you have to do is start speaking truth of Scripture, and you're going to see the carved images that people have set up in their lives that are so precious and dear to them that the truth of Scripture is offensive to them. You can't argue it scripturally, but it's still offensive because they have set up idols and traditions and rituals of the nations before them. No different. Let's look at this one here, Exodus 32. We've talked about it before, but along the same vein, I want you to think about this. Remember, this is the whole story of the golden calf. I'm just going to highlight it. When the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Daniel Joseph was talking about this here a few weeks ago. Notice what caused them to start looking somewhere else. Impatience. Expectations that were not met. Where is this coming he promised? As 2 Peter 3 tells us, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of time. My grandma and grandpa were saying the end was, was near. Everybody, everybody's been saying we're close to the end. Forget about it. That's what's going on here. They got tired of waiting. And they got tired of waiting, so they started looking for other ways to follow God. Now, by the way, they're not looking to follow Baal or Ashtoreth or Molech or anything here. They're still wanting to follow Yahweh. You'll see that in a moment but they're going to do it their way. You see, in 2 Kings that we just looked at, I told you that they compromised because the culture they grew up in had not been removed. Just like I said here, this is the same thing. The culture that they grew up in had not been removed. I can tell you that I kept the culture that I grew up in in a nice little storage in my back pocket ready to be there if need be for years and years and years. My wife will tell you how many years we have not argued but discussed whether she could have a Christmas tree up or not. And I kept saying no, no, no. And there were times I was about ready to give up and say, fine. But I had to keep saying, no. If we're going to do this, we're going to do this. And we're going to remove the culture. Not that I think that if somebody puts up a Christmas tree that they're, they're pagan. I don't believe that. 
but I am going to remove that culture so that my children will know the truth and that truth can set them free. Not to make them better than somebody else, but because I want them to be blessed and to know the truth. It's that simple. It goes on, he received the gold Aaron did from their hand. He fashioned it with an engraving tool and made and molded a, molded a calf. Then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow we're going to worship this pagan God? Uh-uh. Tomorrow is a feast to Yahweh. That's the Hebrew there. He was saying, we are going to worship God. But not the way God told us to worship him, but rather by the culture that you've grown up in. Here's your golden calf. You guys are used to the calves and worshiping uh, Osiris and, and all of these Egyptian gods. Your worship of the bull. And so... Here's their culture. We're going to add it to God's word, and now we'll celebrate Yahweh. Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. i got to ask, are we stiff-necked? I know I am. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and I will make of you a great nation. Was God pleased with this worship of him with pagan culture added to it? Obviously not because he was ready to destroy them. And as a result... As Moses being a Christ figure, remember as I said last on Monday, Moses, it was prophesied that the Messiah would come, there would be one like Moses that would come that they needed to listen to. Well, Jesus, when he came, was the one like Moses. He is a Christ figure, Moses is. And so what does Moses do when they do this? He goes up and he intercedes for them. He says, no, Lord, blot me out of the book of life. And he becomes the intercessor by going up and sitting with God. Yeshua today has risen and he has become our intercessor as he sits at the right hand of God. And let me tell you, we are stiff-necked and we would go to hell if it wasn't for Yeshua. And I'm not talking about just festivals. I'm talking about who we are in the depth of our souls. And so that's what's going on here. Verse 25, it continues, When Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. Moses, as a Christ figure, says, you want to be saved, come to me. Because if you're not with me, you're against me. Jesus says, all who are, you know, uh, burdened, heavy labor, come to me. I'll give you rest. Choose this day whom you will follow. You either get on God's side or you stay on the world's side. Jesus is calling, come to me. What does that mean? Just say, yes, Jesus, I love you? Well, as John says, if you love me, or Jesus says, if you love me, then do what I say. Verse 35, so the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf with Aaron. I said this here months ago. We've got a plague right now of lies going on in the country about this COVID nonsense. Oh, I know it's a real disease. You know, the flu is too. I know it's going to kill people. It has killed people. The flu will and does too. But I'm telling you this. There will be a plague that is going to kill a third of the world. That's what Revelation says. This could be it. Not the virus itself. Probably the cure of the virus. Don't know, but probably. 
That being the case, I don't think that we have the right to say, why, Lord, why are so many people dying? Now, I know I need to be careful here because you know what? Death is part of this world. Death is not the enemy. And there are going to be good, righteous people who die. Matter of fact, as Isaiah 57 says, many of those righteous people will die to spare them from evil. But in general, what I'm saying is this. There's going to be a plague that comes upon this world just like there was a plague upon these people. Why? Because they had rejected God. And let me tell you, the reason that this country, I believe, is under judgment is because we have rejected God. I'm not saying there aren't pockets here and there. I know there are. But in general, this country has rejected God. And we deserve the same thing that happened here at the Golden Calf. Because we have built our own golden calves. Remember what he told the Egyptians, or, or uh, the Israelites? He says, if you obey me, he says, I will not bring on you all the Egyptian, or uh, the diseases of the Egyptians. If we would simply obey God, a lot of the troubles we have wouldn't be here. I'm not saying everything would be great will always have problems. So don't take me wrong there. Last story here and kind of wrapping things up. Just one more example. 1 Kings 12. Jeroboam. Remember I said uh, the kingdoms were split. When Jeroboam became king of these ten tribes, this is what happens. The kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord. Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. In other words, Rehoboam now has two tribes. Jeroboam has ten tribes, and he's going, if I'm not careful, we're kind of a long ways. We're up north. We're a long ways from Jerusalem. God said we were supposed to go to Jerusalem to worship him. And so these ten tribes are going to go there, and they'll be persuaded and will abandon me, kill me, and go back to Rehoboam. So he was worried about his people, his tithers. Let me tell you, that is exactly what many pastors are doing today and refuse to speak on these festivals because they know it's going to ruffle feathers and it could lose tithers. That's exactly what was going on here. They were afraid of the people and losing them, afraid of their reputation, afraid of, you know, not being popular. It goes on in verse 28, Therefore the king asked advice, make two calves of gold. And he said to the people, It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Who were they going to worship? Were they going to worship Baal? Ashtoreth? Molech? No. Chemosh? None of them. They were going to worship God. But just like in Exodus 32, they were going to do it their way. It's not long, and they do worship the other gods. Because when you fear, or you lose the fear of God, that's just the natural thing that takes place. And it's too hard. It's too hard for you to go all the way to Jerusalem. It's too hard for you to keep these festivals. I mean, you're supposed to take a, all this time off of work. It's too hard. No, it is not too hard. It's a joy. It's a celebration. It's joyous. And so, I'm not going to make this a Christmas Easter thing. But again, I want to remind you that I, my parents, all they did was celebrate Christmas and Easter, and they're with the Lord. I know that for sure. I know they missed out while they were here on earth on some things, but this doesn't make you a Christian or not, but I'm telling you that 
whether it be Christmas or Easter or other church traditions that we have today, I have to ask, have they become a god to you? Because for some it is. Don't you dare talk about my traditions. I can show them up and down, right and left, that the roots of this are nothing but pagan. But they will have nothing of it. Because don't touch my tradition. Let me ask you, would you rather not give up your rituals and traditions and the things of this world to follow the Bible's teachings, to follow God's word? And as Moses said, whoever is with me, come to me. Whoever is on God's side, come to me. Again, Moses is a Christ figure. Go to Jesus. Go to his word. Verse 31, he made shrines on the high places and made priests from every class of people. So in order to accomplish this non-biblical teaching, he appointed priests from everywhere. Can't help but think of America and the churches today. You know what the Bible says is that not many of you should be teachers. It says that if anybody's going to be an elder of a church or a pastor of a church, there are certain requirements that you have to meet. We don't care if people meet those today. Same thing that was going on here is exactly what goes on in churches. There are no requirements. If you love Jesus and you want to follow him, here's your you know, online degree. doesn't make any difference what the requirements are biblically. It says they were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month like the feast that was in Judah. Notice he doesn't make something completely different. He makes it look like the biblical ones. He attaches God's stuff to the pagan ones. Again, Christmas, Easter. Christmas is... Well, did you know there's a biblical holiday that wasn't commanded in Scripture, but one that really kind of does the same thing? Well, let me, I'm going to change my mind on that. At the same time of year, there's Hanukkah. That's where I was going with this. That is when Jesus was conceived. But there is a biblical festival to celebrate his birth. We're in it. We'll talk about that either Friday or Saturday. I think you can show beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus was born at this time of year, probably right at the Feast of Tabernacles, which is why the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. Okay, I'll deal with that later, not tonight. But my point is, is notice that we have a festival that looks like it. Easter, pagan holiday, but we made it look like the ones of the Bible to celebrate the resurrection. We have a perfectly good biblical one called Passover and first fruits that celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But yet it's biblical. They're biblical ones. They're the Lord's festivals. So my point is, is it was, you always imitate. You've you got to make it look similar. Verse 33, so he made offerings on the altar which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month in the month which he had devised in his own heart. God said, this is the day you celebrate it. And he says, I'm going to make one like it, but I'm going to put it on a date that I choose. A different date. Again, there isn't a scholar in the world that can teach you or show you that Jesus was born on December 25th. Why December 25th? Because that is the birthday of the sun god, Mithras, Zeus, Ra in Egypt. And so what we see is, well, we're going to celebrate God, but we're going to do it on our own day. So, Again, I have to ask you, why are we doing these things? Why are our, our, our heels dug in so deep that we refuse to simply follow the Word of God? Because we're not doing that out of legalism. 2 Timothy says this, we're about done. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. 
but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves teachers who, it goes on to say what their itching ears want to hear. I think that's the answer why we dig in our heels. The same thing we saw in 2 Kings, the culture, the rituals, the, we've conformed to the patterns of this world rather than to the word of God. James says, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. What's it mean to be double-minded? It's kind of like having a foot in both worlds. A little of both. That's being double-minded. Revelation chapter 18. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Speaking of Babylon. By the way, where did all these pagan dates and calendars and everything, where does, where does that come from? Babylon. And yet in Revelation, he says, Come out of her. Absolutely. The, the Talmud even has all kinds of things that they got from Babylon. Yep. The, the culture and the world. And he's calling them, get out of Babylon and get Babylon out of you. Lest you share in her sins, lest you receive her plagues. There's those plagues again. You continue doing what they did in Egypt, there's going to be plagues. There's going to be diseases. 2 Corinthians 6.17, Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I'm in New Testament here, by the way. What does it mean to come out from among them? Who's the them? Anybody that's not of the Lord. Really. We are to be separate. How are we separate when we celebrate the same pagan festivals? When we do the same exact thing that the world does? We watch the same filth on TV that the world does? That we're going to listen to the same filth on the radio? That we're going to send our kids to the same public schools? How are you going to be separate if we live like the world? It's just like... Uh... Oh, what's his name? Uh, Africa. Bodhi. Bodhi Bakum. You cannot send your children to Caesar to be trained and be shocked when they come back as Romans. It's impossible. Now, I went to public school my whole life. My father was a public school superintendent. God is gracious and merciful. But I'll tell you what, I missed out and let me tell you that Rome affected me. There were sins of, of my past that I am convinced I would not have done had I not grew up in Rome. Thanks be to God for His forgiveness and mercy. But I'm telling you, it affected me. There are still things in my mind that would not have been there had I been separate. Acts 18.20 when they asked him to stay, stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave to the, of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing, and he sailed from Ephesus. We keep hearing, well, these festivals are done, and you know that's an Old Testament thing. Paul, even after the resurrection, even after the ascension, continued to celebrate the festivals. Acts 20, verse 16, Paul was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem to keep Pentecost. So how did this all get changed? Well, we've talked about it before, anti-Semitic attitudes, that's it. Not biblical reasons. The apostles kept them. 24, 14 of Acts, How, however, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, Paul says, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. Paul says, I believe the law. I accept the law. In Acts 25, 8, Paul made this defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple. Paul saying, I keep the law. I've done nothing against it. In the last one, Acts 21, 20 and following, Paul goes to Jerusalem. And 
these rumors have been going around that he is against the law and the traditions of Moses. The, the festivals would fall under, fall under that. And so to show, the, the people say to show that there's no truth to this, to show that you're not teaching people to stop doing these things, shave your head and go through this ritual. Does Paul do it? Absolutely he does. Why? To prove that what the church is saying today, that these things are null and void and done and you, don't, and you shouldn't do them anymore, is wrong. In verse 20, when you go and look at that, it says that the Jews who believe in God are zealous for the law. Are you zealous for the law today? I am. I don't understand it all, and I certainly can't keep it all. I fail miserably a lot. Thank goodness I'm not saved by it. But the more I follow it, as John 14, and as we've talked about in recent weeks, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It is those who obey me who love me. And those who obey me are loved by my Father, and I too love him, and I will show myself to them. God will show himself to those who obey him. That's why I love the law, because in obeying the law, I get to see Jesus more clearly. So, that's why this is worthy of celebration. Friday, Saturday, we are going to talk more about this, and you are going to see how Jesus truly fulfills this festival and why that woman who was caught in adultery was brought to him. Why, as well, that that did not break Torah, because I hear people saying that all the time. The law said she should have been stoned. Jesus didn't stone her, so I guess Jesus didn't obey the law. No, as I've said before, he had to keep the law or he couldn't be Messiah. Couldn't break it or he couldn't be Messiah. You'll see why he didn't break the law. So, let's close in prayer.